Welcome to episode 386 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. From Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And from Winchester, Massachusetts, I'm Nate Mavis. And it blows my mind to think about this, but it probably is worth saying. Uh, it's it's possible there are people listening who don't know uh, who Nate Mavis is. He was the host of this show for uh, over nine years, and he is back with us today because this is, in fact, the 10th anniversary of the Thinking Poker podcast. September 20th, 2012 was when the first episode premiered. Uh, Shane Schlager was our guest, although that was actually not the first interview that we recorded. My, my recollection, Nate, is that we've first recorded uh, what we ended up airing as episode three with uh, Jason Strasser. That was actually the first interview we recorded. But uh, Shane at the time struck me as kind of like a, a, a bigger draw and, and someone who might get some more listens for that first episode. Yeah, that's right. And sort of thematically on point. I, I, I look back and I love that Jason interview. And I think Jason holds up very, very, very well as a public intellectual. And yeah, that was definitely our first interview. And I did it at a standing desk. That was a that was a strange time in my life, but yeah, uh, <laughs> happy happy ten years. Yes, to you as well, to to both of you. I mean, I feel like Carlos. Uh, I think we we met him at the 2012, uh, sorry, at the 2013 WSOP. So it was kind of a, a year, nearly a year after we had started the show. Episode 39 was when uh, Carlos first premiered. But uh, it is very difficult, Carlos, to imagine the show without you. Even before, you know, literally now you are you are officially like a host of the show. But even prior to that, I feel like you've been in the DNA of the show so long that it is hard for me to imagine. Um, a thinking poker podcast world in which we did not know of the existence of Carlos Welch. Yeah, it's pretty funny that I my I I became a guest on episode 39, but I was a listener for several episodes before that. Like I remember fondly the um book club days. Um that was really helpful for me. And then um I guess my first appearance was a unnamed appearance because I submitted a hand, a question for the mailbag, and I was uh, referred to as uh, our correspondent. But uh, you guys didn't know me at that time, but it was a question about Tommy Angelo's disdain for the small blind. So that was like technically my first appearance on the show. No way. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I told you that <laughs> uh, recently. Uh, not recently, really? like within the past two or three years. I'll, I'll see you there. Yeah, he said that. I, I remember him telling us that. Interesting. I, I have no recollection of this. So I'm glad you reminded me. Yeah, that, uh, that'll be a good little, uh, maybe we'll take a screenshot of that email I sent and, and include it with this episode so people can get a piece of that history. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, I was also thinking, and, and this will you know, be a handy time to explain what people may have just heard. Um, we had different intro music for our first couple of episodes than, than what we ended up settling on. And I was thinking about using the intro music that we used for episode one, which is from a group called Monogold. So if you heard different intro music on today's episode than you're used to hearing, that's because uh, that was the intro music for uh, episode one, which I quite like. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously very happy with uh, where we've landed with Palmyra. And I think that's that's great. And we've gotten a lot of good comments on it. But um, that Monogold music, that's a, a solid intro music if you haven't listened to it in, in a little while. It holds up. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, the sound editing does not hold up as well. I, I was doing the sound editing. I, <laughs> I, I was like a bit proud of it. I was just starting to do computer stuff. I was getting more heavily into programming. And one of us had to edit sound if we wanted the show to sound at all good. And there are things that I think I did well, but there are many more things I think I did not do well. And boy, am I happy we uh, 
uh, fired me as the sound editor you know, pretty <laughs> quickly. Um, I'm trying to remember because I, I know we had some personal connections with different people's music that we used. Was Monogold, uh, did that come from someone that you knew or did that come from someone that I know? Uh, that was an acquaintance of a guy named Austin, whom I went through grad school with. So okay. this is like way back in my, in my personal history, I think, I think there's, I think they're basically from Brooklyn. As is, uh, or as was Palmyra. I think they are, uh, the, their lead person is no longer in, well, Sean's no longer in Brooklyn. I think their um, his, his uh, partner in Palmyra is also no longer in Brooklyn, but I believe it was a Brooklyn based band at the time that that music was created. Yeah. Boy, a lot of feelings. So, I mean, do you want to explain the 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 organizing principles of this episode? Sure. I mean, people have maybe picked up on, on the vibe already, but our, our intention is to be reminiscent, uh, to think about uh, not just our, our first episode, but just kind of about how the, the poker world and the show and we as, as individuals have changed in the last 10 years. Um, I re-listened to, I didn't, I did not re-listen to the full Shane Shaniac uh, interview, but I did re-listen to um, our like introduction to the show, which is a little stilted and awkward in retrospect. Um, and uh, also to our strategy segment, which I think does hold up pretty well, but I thought it might be interesting for us to uh, revisit and and in, in some ways talk about um, what we were ahead of the game on or um, things that maybe would have been, you know, that we were thinking of as like important strategic considerations at the time or just like how how the way that I or we think about poker has uh, changed in, in those 10 years. And that would be sort of our strategy segment for today would be revisiting this hand, Nate, that you played in the main event 10 years ago. Yeah, it's a, so a combination of where are they now slash revisiting episode one and um, just meditating on the changes in poker and in us and on the relationships between those things in the last yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. So the first thing to say about how strategy talk has changed is that I presented this hand as an entire hand before we talked about decisions. And <laughs> although I think we were like way ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff, um, certainly stuff that was like out there as poker media in 2012. Um, the first thing that's striking to say about this is that we were talking about a whole hand as a whole hand. And I think as time went by, um, we taught, we thought about spots and like specific decisions much more. And I think this is reflective of a, a more general change in the way people talk about poker. Whereas like in the beginning, like in the before times, people would even talk about like the entire session, like, oh, you can't even talk about this hand without thinking about the entire session and everything's just sort of this huge gestalt. Um, and then we talked about hands for a while. And now I think we'd be much more likely just to say, like, here's a flop spot. Like, here's a range. What do you do with this range in the spot? Do you agree? Yeah, I do. And I think some of that is like there is a desire to avoid the results orientedness of not just finding out what a person's hand is, but even understanding that like, okay, you end up getting check raised on the turn. So then you you sort of knowing that that puts you in a difficult spot, you end up retroactively thinking about like, well, what do I do on the flop to avoid getting check raised on the turn, which of course you don't know is, is coming. Um, so, you know, occasionally it'll happen like when we're doing thinking poker daily, you know, if, if the point that I want to make, uh, is, is more about, 
like the reason why a particular play on the flop is a mistake has to do with the situation that you end up putting yourself in later. You know, I will sometimes request that, that we'll look at the whole hand or, or read the whole hand before we talk about um, individual spots. But I think you're definitely onto something there. I mean, the, the norm for us and I think in the poker world in general has been to think more about uh, spots, which I think is, is correct and how you should be thinking about things, to think mostly about spots as, as individual decisions um, more so than to just think about like, how should I have played this like overall hand differently? Yeah. And I mean, we're both, we've both been around long enough to remember when it was very common on forums just to say like, I have pocket threes. How do I play exactly pocket threes? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and like, and then if somebody says like, well, how, how would you play like nine, eight suited? Like it, it would be very common to see somebody answer like, I don't care. I have threes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was definitely that guy. Yeah. Uh, Before we go any farther, we should tell our listeners what the hand is. Yes. Uh, So this is a hand. Or do you want to do it? Do you you have the details? I I I have the details handy, but it was your hand. So if you also have the hand, please go ahead. They if they want to hear me talk about the hand, they can listen to episode one. If they want to hear this, you can do a you can do a you can do a narration of my narration of the hand from episode one. (laughs) Um. So this was from the the main event. This is level three of the main event. It's the 100, 200 level. And actually there's, there's already, we've, we've breezed past a decision point that is, has been a significant change in how I think about tournament poker. I haven't had a chance to apply this to the main event yet, although I may, um, which is that you were registering the main event in time to play level three. And at the time I was very convinced that like, I was extremely paranoid about not wanting to miss like a single hand, not just a hand after I've bought in, but like, I would feel bad about it if I bought in after the first hand of the tournament had started. And my view on that, I'm not sure my view on that has changed in the main event. That's yet to be tested. But my view on that in tournaments in general, like I late registered damn near every tournament (laughs) that I play now (laughs) to the max. Uh, And that's already one thing that's changed in terms of how I think about poker strategy, even just in the last year or so. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I, I don't play poker anymore, really. Uh, So I would probably show up for the beginning of the main event now, but like certainly my view of the 2012 main event has not changed. I would definitely show up on time for that one. <laughs> That's uh, uh, I think there's a lot of value in levels one through three of the 2012 main event for 2012. Nate Mavis, do you agree? <laughs> yeah. Even relative to even relative to what I, I mean. Never mind that like I was so excited to be there and play it, and it has a lot of like non-chip utility for me. That, that's a big part of it, I think. Yeah, uh, but like. I don't know, like, am I really, I don't know, like, uh, assuming that playing poker is something like I want to be doing and assuming that like at that point, let's say I'm not a computer programmer then, and I'm not trying to like maximize money or I'm out in Las Vegas and I'm trying to maximize money that I'm making at poker. I, I don't think I really had something better to do than the first three levels of the main events, unless there happens to be like the best 60 120 mix ever which is possible in 2012 uh, yeah so I, I think i should be playing do you think i should be playing i do i i one of the things i miss most is just like the i don't know it's a mixture of like glee and like just extreme agitation on nate's face <laughs> from, the moment, from the moment he gets off the plane in vegas to the time it takes him to get to a poker table he's like he can't wait to play and he's like almost annoyed that he's not playing currently like anybody who's that 
excited about getting to a poker table should be there like before the dealer gets there. <laughs> yeah. I, I think my record is 34 minutes from touchdown at McCarran. Not 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 at the gate, wheels on the ground to to having cards. <laughs> <in the end>. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, the one thing I will say about 2012 Nate Mavis is that he was 10 years younger than 2022 Nate Mavis is. Yep. And um you know, my experience in the 2019 main event is that uh, having not played a fifth day of poker when you are going into day five um, could maybe advantageous for a person who is uh, going on 40. Yeah, that's right. Although 2022 Nate Mavis is probably in better shape than <laughs> like I'm I'm taking care of my body probably a bit overall better than I was then, but uh, point taken. And I think I think that's right. This also changed a lot year by year. There was one year when a lot of the days were only like six to nine hours long. And like, especially given that I was willing to structure my entire sort of life while I was out there around the main events, which while you're playing the main event is a reasonable thing to do, I think. Um, you know, I think if you can't work for eight hours a day, like at, at a pretty good level, then there's probably something else wrong. And especially if you're on East Coast time, it's not clear how much I could really relax at like, you know, between 12 p.m. and 3, 6 p.m. Mm. Yeah, it's six hours. That's a lot. But um, I don't know. I think I should be at the table at the 2012 main event for those six hours. Um, or at least I want to be. But 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 the point is taken. I, I know that I was and I don't think I regret it. <laughs> <laughs> I regret not being on the rail. I was still somewhere in Atlanta, uh, unfortunately, at that time. Do you guys do you guys remember what the um, starting stack was back then? Because I know at one point, so thirty, uh, so thirty k, and how many big blinds would it have been? Hundred fifty. This was the hundred two hundred level. Okay, no, but oh, that yeah. was, but this is level three. So I think the tournament oh, yeah. started at uh, fifty one hundred. And then 75, 150, and then one, and then level three is 100, 200. It could have even been 2550. Yeah. I do, I no, do I think know. It's probably 2550, 50, 100, 100, 200. Yeah. I do know years ago they had it where the buy in, the, the starting stack just equal the buy in, but I, know, I don't know exactly when that change happened. Mm, I should remember. I, I was there for that transition. People thought it was weird. They complained, <laughs> then they got used to it. Um, <laughs> Yeah. One thing that was funny is uh, back in the day, the tournament started at 25, 25 blinds with the 10,000 stack and like people, and this was also at a, a much less sophisticated time in poker and people just had no idea what to do with the two blinds, the same amount of time. It was just chaos. That people <laughs> just like, they're just like devolved into chaos. You know, that SNL sketch where uh, the teleprompter goes out and then they like five minutes later, they resorted to cannibalism. <laughs> it was like that. But like, it was like, ah, what do I do? You can check out in the small blind. Like, yeah, it's uh, nobody that those were the days. Those were the days. Okay, I, I noted that we closed that strategy segment with you saying, we talked about that for a really long time. And we're now 10 minutes into the strategy segment and we have yet to get to the first decision point, which <laughs> seems very on brand. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Uh, right. So why, so, why don't you get to the first decision point? Uh, and I, I do think there's a decision here. Uh, Nate is, and a lot of our discussion at the time focused on this decision. Nate is under the gun one at um, probably a nine-handed table. I guess there's a chance this was a 10-handed table, but it was probably nine-handed. Um, I, I would guess 10, but it could have been nine. 
I think there's a chance not all the seats were filled yet if this was level three, even if it was there were 10 chairs at the table. Oh. And maybe that year I didn't play like one of the busiest days. I feel like that year I was playing one like like one B or one C, not one D. So yeah, let's say it's nine handed. Let's say I'm under the gun plus one nine handed. Uh, Nate has 36K, which is 180 big blinds and has pocket threes. Uh, so let's ask Carlos, who was not around for this original conversation. Uh, what do you do here with threes, early position, pre-ante, and uh, 180 big blinds deep? It's definitely a uh, theoretical fold, I believe. Um, I do know um, some players tend to widen ranges when they um, expect to have an edge on the table. And I can imagine by level three of the main event um, on day uh, on day one that Nate would have had a pretty good read on the table. So like one of the uh, old Nate-isms I remember is he would say, I have good control of the table. Mm-hmm. And I like the way I like the way that's out. So if, if Nate felt like he had control of the table at this point, then yeah, I can see him widen his range to this. But I don't think this would be a, a theoretical open. I actually uh, noticed there was a tweet the other day from Christian Harder, who was also an old school pro, but uh, you know, old school by by our standards. And he was also our guest on episode 202, uh, but his tweet was very on brand for this. He said, I missed the times I opened ducks from early position, and now I'm folding threes in the low jack. Shit is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. I do think this is another change in, in um, I mean, obviously solvers are, are a huge change to poker in the last 10 years. And having finally, so, I mean, they're not quite answers still, but having something a little firmer to go on in terms of what preflop strategy should, should look like. I do think Carlos is right that this is, it's either a fold from early position or it would be a mix. Um, I don't have not actually looked at like 200 big blind or 180 big blind um, opening strategies. I, I would be very surprised if this were a, a pure open. Okay, something that I, I did note that we discussed at the time, and I would say essentially I've, I've kind of come around to Nate's position on this. So in that original strategy segment, I was advocating for open limping. Um, the theory being that you really don't want to grow the pot with threes more than you have to until you find out whether you have a set. They're not good hands for continuation betting. And while I think that is true, um, I think that people are going to play less well against the raise than they are against the three bet. And I think that was probably even true in in 2012. Or sorry, they're going to play less well against a, a raise than they will against a limp, which is to say that people are not going to... like the, the main reason not to open threes in early position is just that it sucks to get three bet. And you know if, if people aren't going to three bet appropriately, and, and they surely weren't then, and I still think many people are not going to three bet as wide as they theoretically should now, the value of opening these goes up considerably. You know, you get to see the flop a lot more and, and for a lower price than what a solver would expect. And consequently, like opening with this is is going to be fine. Um, I mean, there could be a world where limping is even better, but I think people are generally a lot more willing to raise limps than they are to three bet opens. And um, I think the like when you're this deep, the difference between like opening, I, I would have opened a 400 instead of 500. So especially with no antes, I think a, a min raise is probably desirable. But I think the difference between like opening for a min raise versus limping is pretty small in terms of how it's like affecting your EV with this exact hand. And I think the, and the point that Nate made at the time is that, I mean, there is a, an information hiding effect of just like, you're just going to open raise things rather than try to have a, a limping range as well. And, and the whole idea of limping here really does rely on your opponents being pretty oblivious to your, your strategy. <clears throat> Although that does 
cut both ways. Like there are also some reasons to just have a limping range as we've discussed on the show many times. Um, yeah. if, like if I think I can get away with a lot and I want to be playing a hand like threes uh, and they're going to get raised a lot, then I, I'm much happier just limping everything. than if it's going to get raised a lot, then I can just re-raise with hands I want to re-raise with. And then I can limp call with hands I want to limp call with or limp and let it get limped through with uh, hands I'd like that to happen. So uh, given everything, I think I would probably just have a limping range here and put threes in it. Uh, but you guys are the poker players. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I would choose between min raise and fold and, and probably are in the side of min raising if there was not a lot of uh, three betting going on. It would have to be a very soft table for me to want to limp. Great. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, so Nate opens to 500 from under the gun one. He is called by a European pro in late middle position and also by a middle-aged guy on the button, which I still think it's fair to call this person middle-aged, but I did sort of chuckle when Nate commented that this person is 38 to 40. Uh, and <laughs> Nate and I are both now uh, 38 to 40. Uh, in fact, my, my 40th birthday will be the day after you are listening to, or the, the day after this episode airs. So uh, I'm I'm about to clear the 38 to 40 mark. Uh, happy almost birthday. Also, this person lives in Boston, so I, I could be in many respects describing myself. <laughs> That'd be wild if you were playing against time traveling. Yeah, it's yeah, no. <laughs> um, and Nate describes this middle aged guy on the button as a uh, potentially tilty but uh, serious slash professional player who seemed like he had you know possibly been out in Vegas for much or all of the series and uh, had not gone particularly well for him um, seemed a little grumpy and kind of in the mood to go big or go home I believe the word undisciplined was used so we are three ways to the flop which is eight three deuce rainbow and young Nate Mavis has pocket threes here so flops middle set in a three-way pot there's 1800 in the pot and Nate makes a continuation bet of 1000. This is another thing that we now have a better theoretical answer to in terms of continuation betting uh, and particularly in multi-way pots. I will say it is very rare to see a solver, especially if you are not the last player to act, to see a solver making continuation bet that is larger than half pot. Um, I still think, and this is another thing that you know uh, we've, we've talked about many times of late, um, there there may well be good exploitative reasons to use a larger size. And in fact, we discussed the idea uh, on this strategy segment of the idea of an inelastic range where people, uh, their decision to call or not is not going to be terribly affected by whether you bet, you know, a thousand or 600, in which case it could even be correct about like 1200 or 1500. <laughs> you would sort of want to max out against whatever their, their inelastic calling range is. Uh, the danger of using this size is that you are kind of revealing you have a strong hand it might be kind of a difficult spot to um to to bet with very many weak hands or especially very many like thin value kinds of hands although this is also one of the best possible flops i would argue for a pre-flop raiser in terms of it's very difficult to outflop over pairs on this board and um consequently you have a pretty significant range advantage as the original raiser so this could even be one of those spots where you actually can get away with this larger continuation bet yeah i think that's right i also was struck by the fact that we didn't even talk about checking the flop or like, you know, stacks are very deep. Like when I see a dry flop and deep stacks and somebody whose range is maybe better defined than, than other people's range, like 
I don't really think that that person should be betting a lot out of position. And at least now I want to think about betting the flop. Maybe it's wrong because it just is so hard to outflop over pairs on this board. But I, I was struck at how little sort of range first thinking I was doing on the air uh, in this flop spot. Yeah, I think that's right. And I would say really like the the hands that most want to bet are are not your sets and they're not pocket aces because those are hands that don't hate it if the flop checks around. The hands that really want to bet are like nines, tens, jacks, uh, eight, seven suited hands where you, you, the hand is very strong, but also is going to lose a lot of its value on, on many turns. So you're incentivized to like try to get money into the pot quickly the th i mean on the one hand like of course you don't want it to check around when when you have flopped a set but what that really means if it checks around is there's a good chance that people weren't going to give you action anyway like a lot of the hands that would call your bet in in because both of these players have position on you like if one of them has a pocket pair or if one of them paired the eight they have a lot of incentive to bet that anyway and if they have hands that they don't want to bet then it's kind of in your interest for them to take a free card because it's not like you're in great danger of getting drawn out on right the more likely scenario is someone has like king queen offsuit or something and you know they're not really going to put a lot of money in on the pot on the flop no matter what you do but there's a chance they're going to peel off that king or the queen and so you know betting even though you know a check around is is in in theory not what you want the reason you don't want it is because it will indicate that they don't have the kind of hand that you want them to have it doesn't mean that you're actually losing value if they do have that hand so yeah i, I think there is a case for I mean, I mean certainly right you should be doing like the range forward thinking of like how much betting versus checking do i want to do here and anytime you are out of position uh, especially with an extremely strong hand, you do want to be considering, you know, checking and, and, and check raising as options, even if you end up not choosing them. Yeah, I'm curious about one thing here. We talk about in these multi-way pots that we generally want to use a small size when we bet, but you alluded to something that has me curious. So in a in a heads up pot, you you do see you do tend to see some bigger bets on these sort of boards with those marginal um hands that are um strong now but vulnerable, like you said, like a um, um an eight or like pocket nines or something. Oftentimes you'll see bigger bets on these sort of boards with those sort of hands in a heads up pot. But then in a multi-way pot, you get you pulled in the opposite direction. And I, I struggle with how to like, you know, reconcile those two things. Yeah, I think a lot of it is it's often difficult in multi-situations to to be very polar because it's hard to have bluffs. And and that may not be true in this spot. Like because of you, like if you if it is true that you have really a significant range advantage, then like maybe you can be betting. I mean, there's not a lot of really low equity hands on this board for one. Like it's hard to really think of like what is the zero percent equity hand on this board. Like anything that you're opening in early position or damn near anything is going to be either a straight draw of some sort or two over cards to the board. So there's not a lot of hands that are just like total disasters if if they get called. Um the hands that would really benefit most from being able to use a smaller size would be like pocket sevens or pocket sixes or something that like want some protection but are doing very badly against the tops of people's ranges. Uh, in many other situations, it's like if this flop were King Jack eight, you know, you can't really justify making a large, but just like there's, there's no like bad, like if you have nothing, you have no coordination with that board, you really can't justify making a large bet with anything other than a strong hand because it's so likely that other people have, have a piece of something. And so consequently, if you make a large bet, you're just screaming, like, I got a good piece of this board. And that that may not be true on this on this board texture. I will say, like a lot of the multi-way styles that I've looked at have not been this deep. You know, there have been cases where maybe large bets weren't 
essential to get the stacks in when you have the nuts anyway. So, I mean, it, it could be the case that when we're looking at, you know, 180 big blinds deep, maybe there is some room for, for larger flop bets. Right. Yeah, it's a good question. <clears throat> uh, young Nate Mavis bets 1,000 and is called by both of his opponents. And we go to the turn, which is a queen that puts up a backdoor flush draw. So the board is now queen, eight, three, deuce with a flush draw that has come in on the turn. Nate has pocket threes. There is 6,500 in the pot. What would you like to do now? Carlos? I am bombing it now. Um, just because I think once I get two callers here, there's a decent chance that uh, somebody has something good. Um, it can't be too good on this board that often, but I'm thinking a hand like, say, four or five, or um, I don't know how, I don't know what they would do with an eight now that the queen has come off, especially the player in the middle. Uh, I'm, I'm going to always bet on people not being able to make um, good foals. So <laughs> I don't think any of these play, either of these players are going anywhere to a big size with a hand like four or five. So I'm just going to target that sort of hand and bet the biggest size I think it would call. So I'm probably going to go like 5K here, maybe maybe up to 6K. Yeah, I think this is a, a really range advantageous spot for young Nate. Um, the combination of not being raised on the flop and then also this queen is a really nice hand or sorry, a really nice card. Um, it's not really a card that's likely to help his opponents all that much relative to him. So I think that, again, like we, this is a multi-way spot. In, often in multi-way spots, it's going to be difficult to make large bets without just giving away that you have a huge hand. But I don't think that has to be the case here. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, barreling big here and just put your opponents in a tough spot when they have something like, as you said, you know, 8-7, where it is actually plausible, even betting into two people that, that Nate is bluffing so that, you know, then when Nate does have pocket threes, he can make that large bet and it's not just giving away that he has a set. There's also, as you kind of hinted at, not a lot of reason to expect other people to bet when checked too, because this is so rage advantageous for the um, for the aggressor, the, the pre-flop and the flop aggressor, the correct strategy and, and a strategy that I think even relatively unsophisticated opponents are going to intuit is that they shouldn't bet very often when checked too. And so hands like 5-4 or 8-7 will probably be pretty happy to, to check behind. Yep. Nate, anything you want to add? No, that sounds good to me. I think at the time I bet what I bet, which was small, just because I thought that I should keep on betting. But I think I, I thought there was a good chance they didn't have too much. And I think I was trying to split the difference a bit too much. And I just said like, ah, maybe they'll call 2200 with these hands. So I bet 2200. Not great reasoning. Yeah, and, and our conclusion at the time was that you should have bet larger, and this is where the conversation about elastic or inelastic ranges came up. And in fact, you you defined those terms very nicely and explained that they were imported from the field of economics, which, uh, you know, th these were already terms that were used in the poker world. But I know that you know we in particular went on to use these concepts quite often on the show. So it was nice to hear that in episode one, uh, you did actually define <laughs> these terms for people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so now you bet twenty two hundred into. Uh, Actually, sorry, it's not 6,500. That that was the size of this person's raise. You bet 2,200 into 5,800. So your bet size is a little larger than we were giving you credit for, but not a lot. 
and the the European pro in late middle position folds, and now the middle aged guy on the button raises to <laughs> sixty five hundred. Uh, never, never a good thing when the middle aged guy raises, especially <laughs> from the button. Um, this so, sucks. W- one thing, <laughs> it, one thing we didn't talk about at the time was like this guy's raised size. <laughs> And I think we should have talked about that. Um, is he's racing not even half the pot, and it looks like he's trying to keep me in the pot, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks, it feels the the size feels uh, valuey to me. Uh, and at the time, I had a long sort of psychological read, which most of I mean, which I I don't remember ten years later, but I trust my ten year old self to have gotten pretty well right uh, about why he probably wasn't bluffing. But I should have. Uh, also added the the bet size to all the to to the reasons for that. Yeah, what really sucks about this spot is it feels like he has either eights or deuces, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's kind of a tricky spot for us to be in with threes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll take the uh, the Andrew elimination analysis approach and say, oh, well, I'm not folding and I'm not raising, so I guess I'm calling. <laughs> Yeah, especially to that size, I don't think I can call. I also think this that person can have queens. Um, people of that type sometimes don't want to re-raise with queens, at least in, not in 2012. Mm-hmm. And then on the flop, when it goes back call, I can definitely see them not wanting to blow the pop. So I, I don't think it's real likely. But another thing that was not mentioned that could have been mentioned is that he could have queens. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we did joke at the time about a term that used to get thrown around quite a lot on, on poker forums and such. And I feel like I have not heard it in a while, uh, or at least not in like a self-conscious joking kind of way. But people used to talk about, uh, I threw up in my mouth a little <laughs> when they get this sort of, uh, find themselves in this kind of gross spot. And um, this this does seem like exactly the sort of spot that that term exists for. Yeah. Well, there's something about Mary, that, that's from a movie ultimately, right? Oh um, yeah, I guess it probably, that does sound right. It's been a long time since I saw that movie, but yeah, that seems plausible. Yeah. So yeah, but I, I, well, I haven't consumed any poker strategy for a long time, but uh, <laughs> I certainly have not heard that phrase. Yeah, I mean, I think it is one of those where, like, you, obviously, you feel great about your hand when you're betting. You're, okay, I have like the third nuts. My hand is great. I'm trying to put money into the pot, and you're happy as long as people are calling you. And this is still something that you know when I'm coaching, I, I try to remind people of a lot. Is you know the difference between someone putting money in the pot passively and someone putting the money in the pot aggressively is incredibly important. And so the way that you think about your hand, which is what what's illustrated here, like the way that you think about your hand, as long as you're betting and they're calling, you're like, great, I'm trying to shuffle as much money into this pot as I possibly can. And we were and thinking like maybe you should have bet a lot bigger on the turn but then once the money is the same amount of money is going into the pot with your opponent raising suddenly we're like oh no this is horrible i guess we have to call (laughs) yeah yeah that's exactly that's exactly right Uh, um another poker um phrase that i'm used to hear more than you do these days is way ahead way behind and this kind of is it kind of feels like that situation to me. Like once you give this guy queens in his range as well, then I think you're squarely looking at two sets that beat you and one that you beat. And when that's the case, I think you just fold. I think you just fold. I was kind of torn on the flop because I didn't have queens in his range. But if he's if he's ever got queens here then we're kind of screwed. Because honestly, even if we say he has deuces, right, and we call, 
and we check to him on the river, he's probably going to think he's good. He's going to bet again. So he's going to inadvertently bluff me off my hand on the river anyway. Yeah. If he's can if he can have queens, I guess I fold. Not happy about it though. <laughs> I guess I don't want to allow for the possibility of his also having five four. I mean, oh uh, yeah, I, forgot I agree. It's one. less likely than the other hands, but I would, or even five six. Like I wouldn't want to roll out entirely some kind of semi bluff. We're we're getting an awfully good price here, and and Nate probably Nate probably has good control over his opponent, so he can uh, make the correct read on the river. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm okay seeing the river. I'm okay seeing the river. Yeah. The river is in some sense a nightmare, but maybe in another sense, actually, the, <laughs> the best river Nate could have gotten um, is other than a three in the sense that if he would have paid off other rivers, the river is a deuce. So the final board is queen, eight, three, deuce, deuce. And the single most likely hand that Nate was ahead of, Nate is now <laughs> behind. <laughs> Uh, so naturally, young Nate starts with a check. I think that's pretty uncontroversial given what we've just explained. Our, our objective is not to put any more money into this pot than we have to. Yeah. Uh, Although and, I, at the time it was like pretty common to lose your mind and like, you know, bet 5,000 or something. So glad <laughs> I didn't do that. Uh, Nate checks. And now the opponent bets 12-5 with only having 20K in a stack to begin with. So he's betting 60% uh, of his stack. Um, bets 12-5 into a pot of 17,800. Uh, and Nate also indicates that he thinks he, Nate, um, had a sticky image at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it was just never good, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a pretty uh, yeah. clear fold. I mean, it's it's an unhappy fold, but it doesn't even ten years later, it does not feel close to me. Wow! So ten years ago, Nate was defying the Zebo theorem. I was yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And uh, we we did also, we concluded this strategy segment by saying, quote, people are going to start calling this the Nickcast. And we at least <laughs> have stuck with that. I don't know that too many people other than us call it that or other than me call it that. But uh, I believe I made a reference to the Nickcast on um, maybe not our very most recent episode, but the last one that Nate was on with Alex Jacob. I know that I referenced the Nickcast. I feel like a lot of our listeners called it the Nickcast. I don't know. you know, in this and new At the time podcast. they did. I just don't know how many people still do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, people outside of just the podcast, um, that phrase is used just in my, um, poker circles, just, um, in real life, just outside of like, I mean, just like, if I don't want to pay for like the fact that the dollar tree is now the dollar 25 tree, uh, <laughs> sometimes, uh, you know, if I'm out with a poker buddy and I like, you know, balk at a price like that, they might say hashtag Nate Cast. So it lives, it lives on. Okay, good. Um, I realize one or both of you is probably going to have to go fairly soon. Um, so let's get into some changes that uh, we've seen in in the poker world in the last ten years. Yeah. Uh, so we had a list of these. Yeah. So. Backing up again, um, one thing we've talked about a lot on the show, or I've talked about a lot on the show, is I wanted to think about poker as like an American cultural institution and what poker is really all about, why people dedicate some of their lives to it, um, and you know what's what's changed in ten years, you know, about poker, um, our lives, and the relationships between those things. Um, one thing that I talked about on the Rec Poker podcast is like. I think we were ahead of our time when it came to like various social issues. Um, and in 2012, it was still not 
it was a very different time culturally, like in America and especially in poker. I, I, I viewed poker as a largely a political space, but heavily sort of conservative inflected. I, I think it was not long before that, that I think it was Matt Savage. I, I don't want to like, I don't say this to call him out. When a very prominent person referred to somebody coming out as uh, admitting he was gay. Um <laughs> And like this was, you know, uh, not considered like a, a shocking or or grotesque thing for a person to say. And I think we were pretty early on, you know, talking about various kinds of social issues in a in a you know, more more modern and and encompassing way. Um, I don't think that by 2022 standards, um, our early episodes were particularly like sort of progressive or or anything like that. So I. I, I'm tempted to draw a comparison with George Carlin, who started his career being sort of uh, considered shockingly liberal and ending his career being considered shockingly conservative and saying largely the same things. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you might. Um, that, that, that's how I think about um, thinking poker a little bit over the decades, uh, over that decade. What do you think of that? Uh, if I were to give a full answer to that, I think it would probably occupy the the remaining amount of our time. I think the the underlying premise that like the poker world has become a lot more woke is not accurate. Um, I think the, the way like a few specific issues are discussed have changed a little bit, but yeah, I, I, I don't see the changes. Really? I mean, so like here, here's one change. One thing that I can sort of guess or, or sort of hear behind your statement, and, and I guess I'll just say it out loud to to keep from attributing it to you implicitly. Um, I'll attribute to it, you, it to you explicitly. It's like the fact that, some poker players are like liberal tweeters doesn't really have a lot to do with with the ethos of poker overall is that is that a fair thing for me to be hearing behind your statement i think so yeah uh, so like let's just put that to one side like when i started playing at boston harbor it was over 100 hours before i heard anybody make a comment on the looks of any of the waitresses and when I started playing at Foxwoods, it would have been almost impossible to go 100 minutes without such a thing happening. <laughs> and and the surroundings were basically in like, you know, and I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the relevant variables were pretty much the same. Um, and, and really all that changed was, you know, just it was a different culture. Like, and, then, and also, like, I got chastised for using a plastic bag to carry chips to the table. And at Boston Harbor, it's like, oh, look at that single use plastic. Um, <laughs> seriously, it's uh, so this is recently a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think when I think back to, you know, like my early days at Foxwoods, what people would say on forums, I mean, we can both remember a time when try hitting her was just like a common meme on two plus two. And whatever you might think that 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 would not fly, I think, in any public poker space now, or or in almost none. I I don't spend a lot of time on two plus two these days. Um, I don't. I mean, there you would get a little more pushback for that. Uh, comments along those lines are still fairly prevalent from from the time that I've seen. I, I think there is more, and maybe this is to your point. I mean, I think you are you are more likely to um, have someone say something about it, but uh, those comments like certainly crop up and i think some of that is just like who's still on two plus two like i think it has become a a more like internet trolley space i think than it used to be like i think there's less substantive poker discussion going on there and there's more just like shit posting going on there that that's probably right um so 
you know, I, I think, you know, the world around the show has changed a lot. Probably the show changed some to go along with it, but, but probably, um, you know, there was change. The, I, I probably, the world changed more than the show did, which is to be expected. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I guess that was the kind of the main thing. I, I, I would, I would say that I think you're right that the poker world is more progressive now than it was 10 years ago. I think that it's not like, I still think it's lagging pretty substantially behind the culture in general. I think that's right. I wouldn't call it like a woke space. I think what I said is there are like woke elements to it and like the sense that this has, I think, also something to do with just like smartphones. When I think about poker back in the day, and even there were some vestiges of this, I think, in 2012, um, smartphones at the table were like a little bit less common. And the idea of going to Las Vegas and feeling like you were in a parallel world, like Uber didn't exist. And I still then felt when I entered a casino that I was entering some sort of like slightly parallel reality, someplace <laughs> where like the ordinary, uh, the ordinary patterns of things just did not quite hold. And now I think if I play poker, like people are on their phones, people are taking Ubers to and from or, or whatever they're taking now. And the idea of it being sort of its own vacuum and its own world and including, yeah, there's a wonderful passage in uh, Biggest Game in Town about this, how like a, the, a president is elected during a game and nobody cares. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly it's hard to imagine like a presidential election happening during a poker game and nobody caring. Yeah, that I agree with. Um, one of the comments you made um, in the in the document you sent us was uh, talking about how it used to be more um, apolitical. I think that's what I think you said that was what yeah. the case was before. Like yeah. uh, that, I think, is gone um, because um, I am one of the people who don't who does not want to engage in or even hear political talk at the table but the few times i play live that you can almost expect that's going to come up um on um, these days and so i i don't know if I, th I think the difference between what andrew is saying and what you're saying is that like live poker like when i'm at a live poker table that feels to me like it's lagging behind like the progression of like the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but when I'm interacting with poker players online, it feels kind of like what you're saying, Nate, that there's been a lot of progress. So yeah, yeah, being at a live table still feels like, you know, 10 years ago in a lot of uh, cases. And um, the the one thing that has changed that I wish wouldn't have changed is the um, constant political talk. Yeah. I mean, did, for, for me, the sense that poker rooms are their own little universes. That's, that's pretty well gone politics or not. Did you agree with that? Um, yes, I, I would say this. I, I, okay. This is how I'll put it. Poker players generally are interested in things like sports, obviously gambling, like entertainment type things. Mm -hmm. I want to say 10 years ago, politics was not considered entertainment mm -hmm. where these days it is. So it kind of fits, if you think about it from that perspective, I think maybe that's why it's more, because it's like people want to sit at the table and argue for their team, mm -hmm. whether their team is like, you know, uh, conservative views or, or 
liberal views where 10 years ago it wasn't as much of a like team aspect like they, they even wear the the uniform a lot of time now when they sit at the live poker table and like that's weird to me so um yeah the fact that politics is entertainment for so many people nowadays i think that's why it's crept into this community of people who are generally really into entertainment type things by the way and this is more a side point but as i've said many times i think that the causality goes the other way that people treat uh politics as entertainment because it's not that they don't talk about other entertainment because politics is their entertainment uh it's that we have no other focal experiences anymore and so people turn to politics as like the thing that we have in common to to talk about and it's complicated and i'm not saying that's entirely it but like it's striking how less common experience we have in in domains like movies music etc than you know 10 to 20 years ago but i've said this all on the show before and it's not what we're talking about today so i'm happy to leave that there i i did i was thinking about your um the al alvarez example and i was picking i mean because that book is from that's even like pre-internet boom right like that's from yeah 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 it's, it's from 1983 yeah so i i think some of that is just like who's going like i think in 1983 it was a pretty specific group of people who were like going to poker rooms you know like it, it was a much more niche part of, of american culture generally and with it entering more into the mainstream um i mean so i i, I think that like the general trends you guys have talked about just now um are, are probably correct but i think some of that is also just like more normies showing up in, in poker rooms it, it's not as much just like only the sort of hardcore weirdo gamblers um which i do actually i mean i i guess this interacts a little bit with with the idea of wokeness but like i i do like the idea of poker being a space that is accepting of weird socially awkward and i guess in some ways socially unacceptable people um or like a, a, a place for people to be their weird selves. And I mean, I guess the, the problem is when like one person's weird self is making another person's weird self <laughs> feel uncomfortable or whatever. But uh, I mean, I, I do like the idea that poker has been a space for even people that I find like interpersonally objectionable. Um, I still sort of like the, the poker table as a place where they can, you know, it, it exist and, and be a part of the community here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I kind of laugh when you when you said that because uh, I because that's kind of how I view it as well. But then everything's relatively speaking. Uh, but when you call uh, when you said that poker is now you know been inundated by normies, um, it's so funny to me hear you say that because like I think the people that you're calling normies, actual normal people probably think those people are pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah, I, I still think they're weirder than like the average person, but I think they're not as weird as the person who was in a poker room in 1983. Exactly, exactly. Um, you, you, you go next. What's another thing that's changed in ten years? Yes, I think like solvers are just in terms of like how we think and talk about poker. Uh, that strikes me as as the single largest thing. Um, I don't know that there were any commercially. Uh, there, there weren't any that I was aware of any kind of like publicly facing solvers in 2012. I do remember like when we interviewed Andy Block, he talked about, I think even in the late nineties, he was already, you know, trying to use computers to, um, not, not to do anything as fancy as solve, but you know, to, to try to learn things about poker strategy using computers. But he was certainly on the cutting edge of that. Um, and you know, now I would say you would be 
irresponsible to be studying with any material that is not, um, not that you have to be doing actual Sava work yourself, but any material books that you're reading or videos that you're watching, it should be solver derived. Like the idea of studying poker without using, um, computer or like artificial intelligence assistance is foolish like it's uh it doesn't mean you have to like follow that um religiously i mean you and we often talk about this on the show of you know like i think understanding how to interpret that those tools is an incredibly important skill but i think those tools are are truly indispensable and uh they were not even on my radar in 2012 yeah strongly agreed and this gets into other stuff about how uh, sort of computer human interaction has evolved in the last 10 years. I think poker is a very good metaphor for it, but like more to the point of what this podcast was like when we started the show, part of our value proposition or, or part of the reason, like we thought it would be, it, we part of the reason, part of what we thought we had to offer was people would want to know how to play a hand correctly. And a reasonably efficient way to do that was to write into the show and then wait a week and then have two guys <laughs> like, tell you what they thought now i think people who write into podcasts to say like oh should i raise jacks like uh, probably those are not the most sophisticated questions we get and like you know like the 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 better correspond the more poker advanced correspondents are also doing work with solvers and then supplementing that with uh soliciting expert opinions from you guys and um it, it makes the poker podcast like as a genre or you know, talking to other people about poker as a way to learn about poker at all as like a human activity, totally different. Um, I also remember, and I mean, this is not really specific to our, our, uh, podcast, but it's something that you introduced me to, um, as a result of our doing the podcast together is, uh, Tyler Cowan. I think this is from his book averages over, but, um, he has a, a section in there where he talks about, and I mean, this is a, a 10 plus year old book itself, um, you know, saying kind of one of the the key skills in what was then the future was going to be uh, people's ability to work with computers. Um, and he actually used the example of computer assisted chess, which at the time, I think it was true that like, and what he reported was that humans working with computers could could be just straight up computers. I think my understanding is that's uh, in chess. My understanding is that, that that's not true anymore but i think the the, the general point um still holds it and we certainly see it in poker where the the ability to work with software is its own like meta skill in poker like the, the people who can just like under uh have a really good capacity to memorize solvers or maybe even people who are using real-time assistance and, and using solvers while they're playing are not necessarily going to well the latter group maybe but um i think that in general like the ability to interpret what a solver is telling you is more important than the ability to recollect a large number of solver outputs without knowing how to like extrapolate from those to how should you play this this real situation um, but i also think that just you know the the feel of someone who has played poker for a long time but never worked with a solver uh, i would not i would not take that over a uh, a well-informed human interpreting solver output yeah yeah it's interesting because now i'm a computer programmer and it's a little bit tricky to talk about like you know, also using computers to do your job when your job is computers. But like, <laughs> there's like a real trick to using all these sort of like prosthetics that we have, like setting up the right kind of tests and static analysis and all this other stuff that you can do. And like, 
you know, like the boom era is now and we're a lot less good, I think, as an industry than like the top of the poker world, at least at sort of combining human and, and computer uh, uh, outputs and judgments about things to try to make good um, decisions, like the very, very best places and and good practitioners are good at that. But like it is fun, like what the my first reaction just on a personal level is like, like, boy, am I glad. Um, I'm in computers and not in poker because poker is like way farther along. I mean, also I just like computers a lot these days, but that's a different issue. Yeah. That's quite surprising. The poker would be further along. Well, I mean the top of poker, like poker to make money at, like not the median poker player, okay, but like you. you can, you can contribute more value. Uh, I mean, if you judge like just being uh, like a pretty good computer programmer, who's like pretty good at using computers to do things with it. Like if you're a competent sort of median professional who's like working on your craft and like trying to do well and like pretty reasonable at consulting the computers, helping you program computers. Like you can add a lot, lot, lot of value. Whereas in poker, if you're just sort of like a median poker player doing a median, okay job of, of learning poker and using computers, like, like you're going to get whooped. Right. <laughs> so it's maybe this is really a point about being in a more cooperative instead of a, a fundamentally competitive endeavor. I think there's also a connection here to, to something that you had on your list of changes, Nate, which is you said abandonment of the idea of different legitimate play styles and the yeah. idea that a play style reflects personality. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, I, I think solvers are, are largely responsible for that as well, that there are a lot more spots where we can say like, there is a right answer to this. And you and I might differ on what that right answer is, but there is a way for us to come to a consensus. And that consensus is not necessarily just look at the solver and, and then that's the answer, but it is like, you can test your assumption. So if you want to say to me like, okay, well, even though the solver says you're not supposed to bet this, like, I think the average person is going to fold too much here. So you should bet it. Okay. We can, we can still use node locking in the solver and get an answer to that question. So, okay. You can, you can build your assumption into the solver and you can test it and it's going to be either right or not. And it's not just going to be like, well, some people like to bluff here because they're more ambitious players and other people who are more cautious play like no there's one of those plays is higher ev than the other and one of those people is wrong yeah and to me this is a huge difference in how poker feels like just it was so much a part of how people thought about poker that they didn't even bother stating it as an assumption like poker players were just like tennis players or baseball pitchers or soccer players or 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 writers or whatever people would compare it to an art a lot um and you know just the idea that it was totally legitimate and like and the most natural thing in the world for there to be differences in play style that were legitimate and that arose from differences in temperaments Whereas now, like, I think that's a very unusual thing to to say. And like it, nobody thinks it's very weird when somebody who's mild mannered and, and just sort of a temperate, quiet person also runs big bluffs as appropriate. Like everybody <laughs> thinks that's like, because they're a poker player and they're playing poker. Like what, like it's the most natural thing. And I think to somebody who, who might not have been around poker back then, it is hard to understand how much of just the the narrative around the media around the general sort of gestalt of poker how much of it had to do with different play styles coming into combat or people like finding themselves individually then that's just gone now yeah i think in the context like we had that conversation earlier about the the nit cast and what it means to be nitty or i mean this evolved as a way of describing a poker player who was very like risk averse and then didn't play a lot of hands and kind of always had it when they bet and for me like my kind of innate nittiness as a person 
is why I am willing to like make big calls and thin value bets and bluffs and things like that, because like there's more money. Like I understand that there is money behind making a big bluff, even though it's attached to risk. And like, I want that that money. <laughs> I want to, <laughs> I, I want to get my share of the money that I've already put in the pot. So for me, that is related to, to knittiness. Like knittiness is not a, a play style. It's the thing that's motivating me to try to find the uh, most profitable play in any situation. Yeah. Yeah. But like that would have been a fringe view, uh, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. I think also related to this is the um the change now in who you want to have at your table so i mean this is this is really i think related to black friday which is a little over 10 years ago when when americans lost access to like poker stars and full tilt um but you know, i would say you going back to the start of of our careers like 15 years ago um you loved seeing non-americans those, those were the fish like if, if you had uh you know a french or an italian or whatever poker player at your table you were generally expecting them to be weaker than the average american and most of the best players in the world were americans and that is very much not the case now to the point where like american poker players are are literally a joke on <laughs> poker forums i think there's there's a person on Amer America's card room, ironically enough, whose screen name is like LOL American Pro or something. Like it's just <laughs> we've been so surpassed by the people who still have access to high quality online um and, and much more competitive uh online sites and and the extent to which like American poker has been set back by by like Black Friday and, and losing access to those online poker options is tremendous and something that I I know that I and many people thought 10 years ago, like, okay, this is going to be a temporary setback, but like, there's so much money in legalizing online poker, like it's going to happen eventually. And it's happening very slowly. It was about four or five states now, uh, maybe even five or six states where there is, you know, ring fenced legal online poker, but we are not as far along that process as I would have expected us to be 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big change. It's a big change. It's a, uh... Yeah, it's like a lot of things. I think this is happening to some extent in baseball too, where it's it's quintessentially American, and more and more of the people who are interested in it and good at it are are not American. And um, so, I mean, on the one hand, I, I I think it's sad. I think that you know, poker is a, a great part of the American story. But like on the other hand, maybe this is the most American thing that can happen to it is to give it to the rest of the world and improve <laughs> on it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm. I must have missed that era where uh, we thought non-Americans were the fish, because uh, maybe that was a live thing, and I didn't really get into live poker until around 2013. But when I played, like I've been playing online since 2004 or five, and I think I just didn't know where people were from and, and didn't even think about it. But I never sat at a sit and go table which is what i played back in those days and noticed that a guy had like you know a french name or something and thought that that might be a fish i just knew honestly i just knew who the regs were and i just assumed everybody else were fish regardless of where they were from yeah there was definitely a a, a big world series meme where when somebody used a european passport for their identification at the table that was when you started to drool Wow. It's so that has changed so much because now it's the opposite. When I'm sitting at a table, I'm looking around, hoping not to see passports. So, yeah, yeah, that's been a major change. 
I'm almost to the point. I'll say this, like recently. Okay. So recently I've moved and had to um, get a different license. And so in the, in the meantime, they give you the little temporary license that I don't like using that thing. Cause it, I don't know, it's weird. It's just like a little printout on a piece of paper. So I started using my passport. Um, I, I was, I was using my passport as my ID at, the WSOP this past year, and I definitely got some weird looks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess uh, maybe I got some extra calls because they thought I'd be bluffing a lot because I showed up with a passport as opposed to a Georgia license. Uh, Carlos, is anything you want to throw on the list of changes in the last ten years? Well, you stole my thunder with the uh, Black Friday thing. That was going to be the one I was going to bring up because I know myself. If I go back to 2012, Carlos. If if 2022 Carlos could tell 2012 Carlos that this shit still would not be over by this point, I would not have believed it at all. So it sounds like uh, you guys probably echo that same sentiment. Other things I would say, and this is piggybacking off of something that Nate said earlier about politics and poker and just like conversations that are had now versus what we had, what conversations that were had back then. And maybe this is even going back earlier than 2012. I might be thinking more like, you know, 20, uh, 2006, 2007. Uh, most of the poker sites I play on these days either don't allow chatting or I just always keep my chat blocked. And that's just made my life so much better. <laughs> but <laughs> here's the funny thing about talking about like, you know, how normal poker players are. You can't chat on a lot of these sites, but now they've kind of like instituted animations where you can like throw poop at each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's a, it's similar to like the kind of stuff that was thrown at you in the chat box when that was a thing. But since we can't do that, now we just throw literally literal animated poop at each other. So it's hard for me to imagine that this group of people could be called normies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say, I think that phenomenon that, or that, that the idea of having, uh, so I mean, what, one benefit of those animations is that they don't rely on language, right? Like you don't have to speak English or whatever other language to understand what the person is saying. And I know I've seen that like Hearthstone is the first place I encountered that, which is maybe not quite normal, but a lot more mainstream than poker. Many more people are playing Hearthstone than, than are playing poker. Um, so I, I think some of these are actually innovations that the poker is taking. I mean, maybe not throwing poop specifically, but uh, this idea of like, bringing in um, the kind of the equivalent of macros. Yeah, sort of like emojis or animations or something rather than having chat. And you know, one thing that that accomplishes is eliminating the language barrier. One thing it accomplishes is, you know, you can throw poop, but you can't throw racial slurs. So you know, they, they kind of accomplish not having to deal with, with some of that as well. I, I would guess, because like America's Card Room had chat and, and just took it away and replaced, I think is what you're talking about and, and and replaced it with those things. And I don't know what their motivations were, but I would guess it was some combination of those two things. And I guess there's also the potential for people kind of soft colluding in chat, but you're talking when they're all in, or I mean, there, there's a few problems with people having access to chat. I would guess that would be their motivations for taking it away. Yeah, I, I understand the motivations for taking away words and replacing them with emojis. I just don't understand the poop thing and just generally throwing things at each other. It's like, <laughs> like th th this is the type of mentality that actually makes me want to play online. 
And they like I got away, <laughs> I got away from live poker because, like you said, there you can't block chat and people do verbally throw poop at each other. And online was kind of like a safe space for that. And now they're even doing it online. But luckily, the site I play on, that's not a thing. I just I just don't understand the appeal of that sort of thing. But hey, different strokes for different folks. Um, so a much more recent one, which I think, Carlos, you're the only one who's actually experienced the new space. And, and you and I have talked about it a little bit, but I don't think we've we've heard from Nate. Uh, and, and Nate, did you ever play the WSAP when it was not at the Rio? Did, did you play at the Horseshoe one year? No, I, I, I played the year where if I had made the final table, that would have been at the Horseshoe. Oh, because I remember you, you played the main event a year before I did. Yeah, and that was the first year it was at the Rio. Okay. So... Yeah, I played I played most of the World Series at the Rio that 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 ever existed there. Um yeah, I, I have a lot of feelings about that place and it's probably never going back. I would be very surprised if it if if it made its way back to the Rio. Yeah, it's it's very, very unlikely. Very, very, very unlikely. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, COVID also complicates that because like I, I've been a germaphobe, like live poker. I have a lot of feelings about being in in indoor spaces with poker players these days that don't really have anything to do with the real, but um, yeah, it's different. How, how how was it, Carlos? It was better than I expected. I did not play much um, live poker while I was there, but um, I did kind of venture down towards the end of the series to play the um, mega satellites, and the so it's in Bally's slash Paris, which is connected. And most of the satellites ran in, I think pretty much all the satellites ran in Paris. That was pretty nice. But then later in the series, I did play one or two um, tournaments and that was in Bally's. That was not, <laughs> that was not enjoyable. Uh, they did not, I want to say at the beginning of the thing, the, the uh, air conditioning was not working. And then they said that it was fixed towards the end. And I got in there and played at the very end and it was still hot to me. But maybe it was, you know, a lot better than it was at the beginning. I wouldn't know because I wasn't down there then. So um, other than that, I think I've heard good reviews. The main thing I was concerned about was just the parking situation. That was no problem at all. The parking um, worked out. Honestly, better. Well, for me, because I have a diamond card, so I didn't have to pay. But if I didn't have a diamond card and I had to pay to pay for parking, I would rather walk through the heat at the Rio for free as opposed to having to pay. I think it's like eight bucks a day or something. Um, But you do get, you know, the shade of the um, parking deck and things are a lot closer. But from what I hear, that wasn't a big negative for most people. So. I think the average person would say that it it was a pretty good change. Yeah, I mean, I, I've not actually been there. I, I like the idea of it being on the Strip. I mean, I, that feels much more Las Vegas to me than some, you know, sort of off-strip location the way it barely even matters that you're in. Like, I don't, I don't feel like that much like I'm in Las Vegas when I'm at the at the Rio. And so being on the Strip, I think, is, is sort of nice in, in that way. And having access to like food at the other options, uh, the Rio is a little bit more of a um, island, although I am grateful to Nate for introducing me to the Gold Coast and some of the uh, the nice food options there. The thing for me is just the, the Rio is so, I, I can't really evaluate it objectively. Like I wouldn't at all be surprised if by any like objective criterion, the, um, the strip is a better location for it. But 
just like every every WSOP experience I have, it gets so tied up with my experience of poker and with WSOP and and with you guys specifically, right? Like Carlos and I were talking about this the other day because he was saying he went to what is now the Royal India Bistro for the, for their lunch buffet, and I was like, oh, that's kind of the birthplace of the podcast, right? That's where Nate and I were uh, having dinner together on on dinner breaks during the 2011 main event when we were both deep, and you know where, where Nate first proposed the idea of there being a, a podcast and just like all my like literally all my memories of, of the WSOP and most of my memories of you guys are connected to to that place so you know I have a, a very romantic idea of the thing and I recognize that like the food options there are not actually that good I don't mind the room I mean people complain about the rooms at the Rio I never really had a big problem with them but I know some people like the more luxurious stuff that's available on the strip um <laughs> Carlos literally coming to us from a room in the Rio right now <laughs> yeah and after having spent several weeks in a room at the valleys at valleys and I can tell you there was nothing luxurious about that room it was fine but no, I, I don't mean valley specifically but like on this like you could stay at um Bellagio, you know, or, or you could stay at the Aria or something. And, and Well, uh, you know, the, the people who can afford to stay at Bellagio, they probably just helicoptered to the Rio to get in their <laughs> tournaments, uh, whatever it was time to play anyway. So uh, I personally uh, would never stay in any uh, place that charge what a lot of these places play. But I, I do understand, again, different strokes for different folks. But when you talked about being on the strip, makes it feel more like being in Las Vegas. For me, as a person who actually lives in Las Vegas, I wanted to feel as little like being in Las Vegas as possible <laughs> when I'm playing poker. But I know uh, most people don't feel that way. I'm also remembering a, a Rio hotel room is where we first met you or where we first interviewed you anyway, Carlos, yep. uh, I guess when, when you and Nate first met. And I think that was the first time we'd ever done an in-person and still most of our in-person episodes have been recorded in, in Rio hotel rooms. Um, so again, that's just like so many of my poker memories and experiences are tied up there that I think I'm always going to have fond memories of it, even if it's, you know, kind of objectively a shitty place. <laughs> Which is not... <laughs> I'm gonna defend this place until they bulldoze it. I guess you don't bulldoze buildings. Whatever they do with that, the wrecking ball. Until they knock this place down, I'm gonna be defending it because I've been in several places, not as nice as the Bellagio or some of these other places. But I even went up and did an interview with Clayton in his room at the Wind once, and I looked around. He didn't know it, but I was kind of scoping the place out, and I was like. <laughs> It's not that much better than the Rio, uh, but just the sheer size of these rooms is like pretty, pretty nice. You don't get that anywhere else unless you really um, pay a pretty penny. Yeah, the Rio, I, I'm with Andrew. Just the World Series just is the Rio for me. Like, like, what does it feel like to bust out of a World Series tournament? Taking a long walk down that road. <laughs> <laughs> what it is, you know? Um, I, I don't really know how to think about it otherwise. Like, I, I spent... One year when I made like a deeper run, I was in Bally's for a lot of the time. So I feel like I know that casino pretty well and like the Bally's Paris corridor and like the idea of like busting out and then just, I don't know, going to get like that weird Euro gastropub burger or something. I don't know. Uh, it's just not the same. It's not the same. Uh, I know you're both going to have to go in a minute. Is there any last thoughts either of you guys want to put out there? Thanks for doing the show. I'm glad it exists. You know, one thing that I think is that um, 
probably says more about me than about other things, but this podcast was one of the most successful projects of my life. Um, so I'm really glad it still exists and I'm super grateful to both of you. So, um, you know, it, it was, uh, I'm sort of an experimental person. I try a lot of things. Many of them fail. Uh, the podcast, you know, I made my, I, I made a, a lot of mistakes with it, but, uh, I consider it a basically successful and long lasting project. So, you know, hooray. I think it was a good idea to do it is what I'm saying. Agreed. It definitely changed my life and here's to another 10 years. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I will third all of that. And um, specifically when you talk about success, I, I did note like both you and I, Nate, mentioned some some objectives for the show or an idea of what the show would be when we started it. And the quote that I wrote down from you is that the poker world is much more interesting than most poker media would have you believe. And I, I made a reference to kind of like what, one of the things I liked about poker was you know meeting different types of people and people from all around the world and, and kind of being able to bond over the common interest in this game. And I think certainly by those two metrics, uh, the, the show has very much been a success. Like I, I do feel very good about um, you know, highlighting interesting people in interesting corners of the poker world that either you don't see in other poker media or maybe that you do see in other poker media because we put them out there first. Um, yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, meeting, meeting different types of people, uh, you know, Carla certainly being a fantastic example of this, but, uh, you know, we've talked before about many different, you know, both people who've become long-term friends and even people that we never spoke to again, but just, I was grateful to have the opportunity to speak to them once and, and to hear from them and to put their voices out there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think we even moved the needle for other parts of poker, as you alluded to, it's like, just, I think we, I don't know how much like influence we have, but I think it was non-zero, just the idea that poker media could be something other than, you know, who, who won a tournament, who's good looking, what cars Dan and LeGrand are driving these days. Like <laughs> it's, you know, like that there was, there was more out there. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I I'll, I'll call it a success. I will, I will say this, um, Baller worship in poker has definitely gone down over the past 10 years. And I think this podcast had a little bit to do with that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks right, so thank much. Thank you both very much. Yeah. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye, guys. Devotion of a car, my life.